you know, there's going to be thousands upon thousands of clients in the market that aren't going to want to look at my model because they're going to say, what? You want me to pay for recruitment without guaranteeing a result? Come on, I get that. I'm not saying this is the, you know, the golden egg of, of recruitment, but what I'm saying is my model, there's a massive place for it. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and my guest today is Craig Watson. Craig is the founder of Rextra, which is a community of freelance recruiters who, in Craig's words, are changing the face of recruitment forever. Their business model is certainly disruptive. You're either going to love it or hate it. If you're a third-party recruiting and staffing agency, you may well feel threatened by Craig's business model. Uh, He is a killer of sacred cows. He gets a fair amount of hate from traditional recruiters. There's no question though, Craig is an innovator and he's trying to reimagine the talent acquisition process. So instead of reacting emotionally and dismissing his concept, you need to hear this information, listen to what Craig has to say, really consider it carefully. Now, Craig actually comes from a traditional agency background. He has over 20 years recruitment and sales experience. He's a trainer, he's a consultant across a number of industries. His key topics that he specializes in are social media, business building, TA tech stacks, managing process, leadership, business modeling, and of course, attraction, engagement, and retention. Craig is presented at global conferences and he was recently named in the top 50 global HR and recruitment influencers. Craig actually hosts his own podcast or co-hosts his own podcast, TAPOD, T-A-P-O-D, which is a podcast for TA leaders and professionals. It's ranked in the top 10 for career podcasts in Australia and New Zealand. Welcome, Craig, and thank you for being here. Thanks, Mark. It just sounds like you're talking about someone else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it's you. It's you, my friend. So um, we actually know, well, you you were introduced to me by Robin Dernecker, who has also appeared on the show. Uh, It turns out we know a lot of people in common, including Greg Savage. Um, How do you know Robin? Interesting story. Um, So, oh, gee, about about two and a half years ago, a gentleman from the US contacted me and said, look, I'm going to put on a a television documentary around the recruitment industry and I want to do it uh, Team Europe versus Team USA versus Team Asia Pack. Would you help me put together a team from Asia Pack? So, um, yeah, I went around that. Robin became one of the leaders on the Asia Pack team and we spent two weeks, I think it was, or just under two weeks in a beautiful castle in the English countryside filming non-stop for 24 hours a day with um, cases of champagne and like a, it's like a cross between the Shark Tank and The Apprentice and um, I I had the easiest job, really easy. I was the, the international counsellor so I just got to cuddle people who were crying and um, and really just, just watch a lot of the action unfold around me. Wasn't that, I've heard of the show. It was supposed to be on Netflix, but it's not on Netflix U- UK. Um, what was it called? It's called The Movement and it was on um, Amazon Prime, uh, but oh, it's Amazon. been taken okay. down to be recut and renamed. So the original uh, docu-series or became a documentary, so it became a one-hour a one uh, episode and Chris Lavoie, who's the the producer, has taken it down to recut it into six episodes. So it should be back up on Amazon Prime, I'd say within the next three months. Oh, cool. I'm going to look at, because that's right, it's Amazon Prime, not Netflix. I couldn't find it. And... um, so, because Robin had mentioned as well, wasn't, was James Khan involved in that? He was involved with series one. So this was series two. So yeah, okay. he was involved with series one. Uh, series yep. two, it had a couple of different people, had one of the uh, Dragon's Den hosts from the US as one of the final judges, but it was much more okay. focused on, I think, some current practitioners and entrepreneurs that were looking to, to invest and looking to find the next big thing in HR tech. Ah, interesting. So was Anne Swain involved in that? Or yes, that she was. One Anne, you know, one take Anne. Um, so every time Anne got in front of the camera, she just nailed it. So no, she, she's fantastic. Lo- I loved working with Anne. Yeah. Yeah, she's brilliant. I've done a few things with her. Recently, she invited me to speak on the APSCO um, 
they are doing a, a sort of weekly Q&A series right. uh, throughout the you know coronavirus pandemic to give extra support to their APSCO members. And I was one of the panelists. Um, I was honored to be to be asked. I'll actually include a link to that in the in the show notes here and also a link to your podcast, uh, Craig. Why don't we start with that? Like what? Why did you start a podcast? What is it all about? What do you guys do on that show? Well, um, I got involved with, do you know the recruitment events company in the UK? Yeah. Jamie Leonard. So we have the recruitment events company here in Australia and, and I was attending some events there. And what we we're continually finding is there wasn't, apart from the, the monthly catch-ups, there wasn't much of a forum for interaction with talent acquisition leaders. Uh, there was the occasional conference or there was the occasional lunch meeting, but to have sort of a weekly uh, place where they could get some information, they could share trends and we could find out what was going on was just missing. So I was sat next to a, a, a lady called Lauren Sharp, first time I met her, and she turned to me and it was during the lunch and we we're talking away and she said, you know, I've, I've been thinking about maybe um, starting up a podcast. And I said, oh my God, so have I. And a week later we started it and um, we've been really lucky. It's hit that spot. Like, you know, you, you tend – You'd know yourself, particularly in the last uh, two months, there's a lot of noise out there. You know, everyone who's decided to wanting to get into a podcast in the last two months with coronavirus and been stuck at home have have started one up and there's a lot of competition out there. So we were lucky we got into the space prior to this saturation. We've been able to find a really strong niche. We've been able to get a lot of tech tech and HR tech vendors that want to jump on board and support it. And we've been given access to some amazing guests, which helps. As you know, you know, you've got nothing if you haven't got a great, great guest. Uh, and we, I think the other thing is we don't take ourselves as seriously as uh, – some other people in the market in that we, we, you know, so very self-deprecating. We'll joke, have a joke at each other's expenses as co-hosts, which it's easy when you've got a co-host, right? You can't really, you know, take the piss out of a, out of a guest. And, and so <laughs> it's easy for us to, to sort of do that and, and make them feel comfortable. And you find you get these really nice nuggets when they're relaxed. So yeah, when we just love doing it. And again, as you know, as you would know, the once you start building an audience, there's an expectation of of delivery on a certain time, whether it be weekly, fortnightly, monthly. Um, so you're locked into this really nice schedule um, that that people get used to. I remember talking to uh, Hung Lee um, for recruiting brain food, and and he said with his recruiting brain food. Uh, newsletter that comes out every Sunday. Once he was in, I think, Portugal and he'd had a big night the night before on a Saturday night and he was lying on the beach, I think, um, sort of trying to get over the the feeling of the night before and, and missed the, the deadline for recruiting brain food. And within 20 minutes, he had messages from all around the world saying, what's happening? You okay? What? So, you know, when you do one of these, when you enter into the the media realm, whatever it may be, uh, and set a schedule, the expectation says, so you, you're held accountable. And I love it. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's, um, it's a fantastic medium. It's very intimate. I, I would do this even if there was no commercial benefit because I just learned so much. I love learning and I'm constantly trying to expose myself to great ideas. And I also want to surround myself with really, you know, top-notch people. So, um, you know, the podcast allows me to do that. And, and the fact that I can then share those fantastic conversations with, you know, my listeners as well is kind of a, is a bonus for sure. Yeah. Um, and that benefits, benefits more people. I totally agree. We had, um, I, I learned from every guest, I learned something, you know, maybe it's something, you know, what not to do, but you're always learning something. And uh, we had, uh, Joanne Lockwood, another person from the UK who's a transgender and, and speaks at um, many conferences. And and I, I couldn't tell you, the hour that we spent with her, I learnt more about things that I'd never, ever been exposed to. Uh, and I don't want to say it completely changed my views on anything because I didn't have views, uh, but it opened my eyes. And and these are the sort of things that we're lucky, you know, we're as as being in a position to to host podcasts and get people on that have a story and have something to say and can add value in a minute way for some people or in a massive way for others. It's it's very we're in a lucky, fortunate position where we get to to get all their information as well. So it's great. You know, this is something for uh, our audience listening right now to think about. The podcast actually is 
These kind of inf- interviews are something I have always, always done. I just didn't record them. And, um, you know, when I was 16, I listened to uh, Tony Robbins' original personal power tapes. Yeah. My dad got them for me. And uh, he talks about modeling, finding people who are already getting results that you want aspire to and find out what they're doing, what's the mindset, the strategy, the behavior. and um, And then if you can do those same things. You're not necessarily going to get the exact same result, but you can increase your performance. And so that idea definitely went in at an early age. And then throughout my, whatever success, I wasn't a phenomenally successful recruiter. I, I did pretty well, but whatever success I enjoyed was definitely from finding great people and saying, Hey, you know, how do you do that? Mm. Or, you know, so that's how I learned how to sell retainers. It's how I improved my negotiation skills and got bigger fees. Everything, like my journey in recruiting was finding mentors, essentially. I'll tell you a funny- saying, hey, can I buy you a coffee? Go ahead. I was going to say, I'll tell you a funny story that, that aligns yeah. itself with that. So I know you've had Greg Savage on, the, um, on your podcast before. So maybe, mm, what are we now? 2020. Uh, so let's say- Oh, yeah. So it was around about 2014. Um, Greg was, you know, and still is the sort of the leading blogger in, in the recruitment yeah. space, uh, particularly in Australia. He's, he's obviously got a, a global, uh, you know, brand now. Oh, and, definitely. He's huge over here and as yeah, well. And, and he wrote, a, he wrote a, a blog and the headline was uh, women or females are better recruiters than males, right? And it was, um, went through certain stages and then the comments at the end and and, you know, I, w- I, I was sort of personally affronted in, you know, because I was, I was in wreck to wreck at the time and all this sort of thing. And I, I wrote a comment saying, I, I don't know how you can even, you know, begin to write something like this. You know, it, it, there's different genders are, are more represented in different sectors within recruitment. Uh, none of this makes sense to me, blah, blah, blah. You know, it went on. And anyhow, about two years later, I decided I want to start to start blogging. Right. So, you know, and, and I thought, right, what am I going to do? And exactly what you said there, Mark, I said, I've got to find people who are doing a really good idea who or really good ways of doing it that I love, um, ask to buy them a coffee, sit down and, and tell them, be honest, uh, and, you know, try to, to get some more information and, and, and learn something. And anyhow, so I, <laughs> I sent a message to Greg, who I'd probably only ever met once and he probably would not have known me from, I don't know, from Adam. Sent me a message and said, hi, Greg, next time you're in Melbourne, I'd love to buy your coffee. I'm going to start a blog uh, in the rec-to-rec space and I'd love to, to pick your brain. Within 30 seconds, th- so this was like three years after that blog that he'd written, 30 seconds later, he writes back and says, I'm very surprised you would want any advice from me given your comment from February 14th, 2000. <laughs> I go, whoa. But anyway, he caught up with me and he was so generous with his time. And, and I was lucky enough to build a really strong blog in my space off the back of, of, of Greg and a couple of others. Um, so very, very lucky, but you know, it's, it, you're right. You, these people have been, um, polishing their craft or their art for a number of years and to learn from them and then to add your own moniker or your own brand or your own style to, to it um, can create something really special, but you've got to be open to being, to learning all the time. If you, you know, if you're the, the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room or, you know, you're not going to learn anything. So surround yourself with people you can learn from all the time. And, and the other thing that you said just before too, about um, you've been interviewing since you were 16, you know, in the recruitment realm, we've been interviewing our whole careers. All of us are interviewers. And, and what we're doing is we're finding out information about people. And I'm, I would go on record as saying that almost every single interview that I've done in the recruitment world, I've learned something. Again, it might not sure. be positive, but I've learned something. So recruiters are really good at, at this sort of thing. Um, it's, it's, it comes natural because it's a part of your job. If you're a good recruiter, even if you're a half good recruiter, you're a really good interviewer. So, yeah. Right. Absolutely. What I think maybe um, holds people back is they limit themselves to their immediate network. And they're just by which I don't, I'm not sure if it's they don't want to intrude, they don't, or there is the rejection. And I'm not sure why, but I've never had any qualms about just reaching out to somebody and asking for help. Mm. And 
you know, someone who I've never met before, like you did with Greg and say, hey, um, can you help me or can I get your advice? Or sometimes I'll see, if it's someone who's really like, uh, I don't know if this is the right term, but out of my league, like someone who's a multimillionaire or, or, or whatever. And I'll say, um, hey, can I buy an hour of your time? And uh, I just would I, I really and obviously, if you've done your research, I, you know, I admire this, this or this. Um, I'd love to pick your brains and ask you some questions. Um, and do you know what? I, I, I'll never forget once I did this and uh, the person wrote back and said, um, there's no charge, Mark. What, you know, how can I help you? You know, let's book, a, let's get a call going. Yeah. And um, I've found that's the, that's the norm. Most people are happy to help. You're right. You're right. You just need to ask. The first, um, interaction I had in that way. So a number of years ago, I ran a, a small video production company for a while, just, just little, it, it was, it was fun. We did family history. So we went and interviewed families and put it together for them. And, and my business partner was a guy who used to play cricket for Australia. Um, and he, after that, he became a media personality, right? So he's a celebrity. You walk down the street, people recognize him. And I, you know, I, I used to catch, I, I ended up becoming pretty good mates with him and you'd, you'd go and have a coffee and people would come up and ask for an autograph or to say hello, get a photo. And he'd always do it and always do it. And with a smile on his face. And I said, geez, Max, you know, his name is Max Walker. So some people who uh, know cricket, late seventies, early eighties was a test cricketer for Australia. I said, you know, Max, you're, you're really generous with your time and everything. And he said, you know what, Craig, he said, if anybody ever asked me for a coffee, I would bite their hand off to take it. The worst thing I'm ever going to get out of that is a free coffee. And the best thing is I might learn something or be opened up to a great opportunity. And that's from a, right. a this is a, 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 celeb, a celebrity, right? Not, a, not an A-lister, but, you know, I think it's a little bit different these days. A lot of the people who, whose celebrity has been built more in a, in a social media presence, uh, you know, I'm talking like the reality show people, maybe they're not, you know, they've got a, 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 a probably a, a, a wrong sense of their own um, importance. <laughs> but, but genuine people... And, and even more so, a lot of successful people are open to that notion of learning something so they will be generous with their time. And we look at it by saying that exact word, you're being generous, but the way they're looking at it is I'm looking at this as an opportunity anyway. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, look, I, we could talk about this for ages. I've got a funny story about um, taking uh, Greg Savage for a steak dinner. I'm vegan, by the way, but uh, he wanted steak, so I got him steak. Um, and uh, But if we have time, I'll tell that story again. But right now, what I want to know about is uh, Rextra, like mm. how you came to this idea and how you turned the concept into a reality. Okay. So Rextra, as you well said at the start, is a community of freelance recruiters. So we work as sort of an extension of, of corporations uh, existing in-house teams. It's almost, if you want to really dumb it down, it's almost like a f small flex RPO uh, where they might say, we want you to come and do an element of a project, or we might want you to take on a number of roles. And we might want you to work one role that's difficult for us that we haven't got an expertise in. Now, this person basically is immersed the recruiter from Rexter immersed in the business for the entirety of the project. And that could be, uh, and the client has the opportunity to turn it on and off whenever they want. So we, our charging model or our, yeah, our, our invoicing model is based on consulting firms, based on what should we go with a, with an accountant or a lawyer. So it's hourly rate based on activity. So recorded activities through our platform are then generated into an invoice and once a week sent to the clients and saying, this is the work we did. So I guess the biggest takeaway from traditional recruitment and, and you know, when you're imagining this model, imagine it, it's easier to imagine it if you're looking at it from the perm market, perm recruitment market, much easier. So uh, it's pay for service, not pay for outcome. So generally recruitment, you, you get paid when you successfully place someone. All right. And, and, and if that's the concept, uh, the, the reasoning is very much the last bit I touched on is recruitment agencies. And, and so my background, recruitment agencies for just on 10 years, then just over 10 years in rec to rec. So in a rec to rec capacity, all you do is see every agency business model in the marketplace and you hear every horror story from the candidate side but also all of the really good stuff. And, and what 
I found, and look, this is not only in the recruitment industry, but that's where my expertise and what we're talking about here. So, so everybody, every client I went to talked about their point of difference. They all talked about their point of difference and why someone should come and work for me, right? But the point of differences tended to be the point of sameness. We have deep candidate networks. It's our people who are different. The way we look after our candidates is different. If you go on 10 recruitment agency websites, nine of those agency websites will put them down as their points of difference. So when you're competing for a large piece of work, what is there left to make your difference on? Generally, it's price. And, and do we really want to be doing that? All right, so Rextra was born out of a need to have a point of difference for me to think to be successful. From there, I kept a lot of data on recruiters that we interviewed for rec to rec roles that either left the industry or weren't successful. And what we found was that 28% of recruiters who I sat across from to interview to look at getting another job in recruitment left the industry because of either they wanted more work-life balance and flexibility or they didn't want to sell. Okay, so we were losing people from the industry. And I know, I completely get that a, an agency environment is end-to-end. -end, and it's a sales industry. We know that. We all know that. But we were losing amazing people out of the industry because they were being forced to sell where they were much, much better in the people side. And there wasn't an opportunity to do resourcing because most uh, agencies aren't modelled up that way anymore, probably since GFC. And other, there just not, was not the capacity for these recruiters to get meaningful work unless they clocked on at eight and clocked on at off at 5.30, when we all know that we're doing candidate interviews at 11 o'clock at night or we work through our lunch when someone can see us. We've got to be there when our candidates can see us or talk to us. So this notion of punching on and being at your desk, doing all of your activity and then punching off and making sure, you know, it's even better if you're the last person to leave the office, just doesn't cut it for a lot of people. So... That, that was another element. So we thought, well, if we can develop a model that suits these fantastic candidates who are so good at people and we can differentiate ourselves via something, we've, we've got, we're onto something. So with the um, consulting type invoicing structure or modelling, we've worked out, and it sounds a lot. So if I say to you, we charge our clients $160 an hour right? And we pay our recruiters nearly $140 an hour. So about half that for, for, um, for British currency, you know, if you, if you sort of look at it. So um, it's still a good hourly rate, right? But what people that need to understand is we broke down the recruitment process or the recruitment function and an average, I'm talking an average permanent role has about 15 to 17 hours of dedicated activity. Most people will go, that's a load of rubbish. Most people say, how can you say 15 to 7 hours? I'm not saying it takes you less than a day to fill it. What I'm saying is billable activity where you're actually engaging directly with a client or a candidate or creating a document in the form of a profile or, or taking a reference check, something where you're doing actual activity, it's around about 15 to 7. Forget your CEOs and your, you know, your super exec search stuff, different. Your average role. So if we're charging 160 bucks for 15 hours work, it's about 3,000 Australian dollars. So about under, just under 1,500 pounds for a perm placement. Now in Australia, our, if you want to do the, the mass, $3,000 that we're charging, the average placement fee in Australia is between 12 and $15,000. Okay, so straight away, the recruitment industry, agency industry, which I was so immersed in, got the shackles up and said, you're undercutting us, you're diluting it. What are you doing? What are you doing? Now, again, and thank you for saying it, that there's going to be people who, I'm not on here to upset people. I'm, all I can do is talk about my experience and the research that I've done, which I'm happy for it to be challenged in any way. Recruitment, perm recruitment modelling has not changed much since it first was invented by either Rob Walters or Drake, whoever, whoever they have an argument over who was the first recruitment company um, back in the 50s. So 
it hasn't changed much since then. You know, right? It's a it's a percentage of the annual um, salary paid at the end. Now that annual salary, let's say in Australia, it's twelve thousand. I believe, and I'm happy to be, to someone to change this belief that. Again, going to stats, recruitment agencies fill one out of every three roles they work on average, right? Work it about. That's actually, that would be good going for contingency recruiting. The stats I've seen are one in five on average. So one in three is actually pretty good. Okay. So, so, okay. One in three to five. Now, recruitment consultants are paid a salary. Recruitment companies have rent. Recruitment companies have lots of on costs. That one successful uh, placement out of the three or five you're working, that one successful placement, again, this is my opinion, pays for all the work that the recruiter does on the others that is unsuccessful on. All right? So using that logic, (laughs) recruitment is overpriced by three to five times. That's okay, the logic. Wow. Let, so let me let me re- just press pause and re- respond <laughs> to some of what you've been saying, Craig. Uh, and then because I'm st- I, you've now explained the concept, but I want to hear how you actually launched this because it's been really, really successful. And, and I'm sort of hoping that um, I'm sort of hoping you'll challenge me, Mark, because I know that you know you're you coach and train within the the agency space. Uh, and some sure. of what I've just said, then I'm not going to say we'll go directly against what you say, but it would be you'd be working within the models that I'm saying um, uh, or talking about. So I'd love to be challenged. The recruitment industry is going through a time of unprecedented challenge and all of us have been affected to a greater or lesser extent. From what I can see from my vantage point, speaking to hundreds of recruitment business owners around the world, for the vast majority of recruiters, this is a very painful time. What about you? Do you have a plan for the next 30, 60, and 90 days? All of my clients have a plan to navigate this crisis because I've helped them to create one. I've survived multiple economic cycles, including the dot-com bubble, the crash after 9-11, the great recession of 08-09. And listen, I know this is different to anything we've seen before, but based on my past experience, I'm confident that I'm getting through this in decent shape and I'm determined to bring my clients with me. So if you're ready to be proactive instead of reactive, and you're open to getting some guidance and support, then you're invited to apply for a free 30-minute strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. This is not a sales call. I will be focused on helping you to get clarity on your situation and create a plan for moving forward. By the way, I don't have all the answers and I'm not promising miracles. I can promise you'll leave the call feeling focused and re-energized with a solid plan for moving forward with or without my help. Once again, it's www.recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. All right, awesome. Well, let's first talk about what we agree on, which is number one, the point of difference thing. Um, I actually did a video a few years ago. If I can find it, I'll link to it in the show notes, which is called Why 98% of Recruiters Sound the Same. And, you know, because I because I've trained at this stage, 10,000 recruiters uh, around the world. And every time I go into recruitment business, I, one of the things I ask them is what's your value proposition? Well, how do you differentiate your service? And then they, they'll, whatever they tell me is I've heard it, a, you yeah. know, a thousand times before and they think it's unique. And I'm, I'm telling them, listen, that's really not unique. And it's the sort of things you've, you mentioned earlier um, and I, in this video, I actually go through like 20 USPs that recruiters say, but of course it's a contradiction to say these are the most common unique selling points. Mm. Um, so, so I totally get that. And so I'm really interested in how you've um, completely just reimagined the way these services are delivered and looked at other industries like law or accountancy and thought, well, you know, why don't we just charge per hour <clears throat> instead of uh, on, you know, for the result. So, so everything that's all makes logical sense. Um, I, I, I suppose, and I, I can also see how this would suit some individuals. I'm a salesman ultimately, and I'm actually better at the business development than the recruiting part. Um, and one of the attractions initially for me getting into recruiting was, I mean, of course I love people and I knew I wanted to be involved in some kind of 
you know, using my communication skills and, and uh, you know, influencing and that sort of thing. But I also wanted to make a lot of money. And so I saw this as an opportunity where if you're efficient and if you're productive, you can make more than you would if you were on an hourly wage or a fixed salary, right? And so that's kind of was the attraction for me. But <clears throat> having said that, that is not going to suit a lot of people because, and it, you know, I grew up probably you as well. I, uh, I'm guessing we're a similar age, Craig, which is, you know, 23? it's like eight in the morning till eight at night, right? You're expected to be, you know, really hustling. Um, and there is not much scope for flexible working for, you know, people who want to um, accommodate, you know, family or uh, returning to work or any other, basically any other situation apart from you're going to hustle and grind for more, way more than 40 hours a week. And, um, you know, so it, it, I, I, I see that I can definitely see the appeal of this for people who actually they want more flexibility um, and they maybe are great recruiters um, and just want to do that part of the job. I, I see that being hugely appealing. So all that makes sense. The only thing I would challenge you on or play devil's advocate is um, that the, the concept that um, recruiting fees are overpriced. And let me explain why. I, I believe that the fee we charge is based on the value that the individual is bringing to the organization and the impact that they're going to have. So um, if you're placing someone who is um, going to come in and I mean, all CEOs say, you know, our success, the success of our organization comes down to the talent and the people we have mm. on board. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, and having the right talent on board can make a massive difference to you know, teams being successful to the profitability of that organization, even their valuation, you know, their stock price, their, um, you know, uh, the, the, how competitive they are, how innovative they are, really does come down to having the right people in place, right? So therefore, as a recruiter, um, now in some roles, this is an easier argument than others, but um, for any role that does directly impact, you know, um, the the in some way, the profitability, and that could even be a developer who's innovating and creating great uh, software products or whatever. It doesn't just have to be a sales or commercial role. Then uh, your fee, even if it is 12000 Australian or a lot of my clients are in the US, then the average fee might be $25,000 or in the UK, it's probably more like, you know, 6,000 pounds or whatever. That fee is, um, you know, uh, is uh, what's the word I want? Uh, the value of the person outweighs the cost of the of the fee, and then if you factor in the time saving uh, of the um, you know the management people involved as well, on top of that. Um, now, <clears throat> what I'm talking about is an exceptional recruiter placing exceptional people, not the kind of average, right? And um, I also don't like the contingency model at all. So the one in three to one in five situation, that is ridiculous, right? That's uh, that doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work for the for the client. Ultimately, even though they sometimes think it does, it 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 doesn't serve the client. Doesn't serve the recruiter. Doesn't serve the candidate. Everybody is poor. You know, has a poor experience as a result. It's dissatisfying. It's you know, it, it causes um, a lack of engagement um, for, for the candidate and and a poor experience. So you know, the, the conversion rate should be much higher. And, and so I'm training people to either work on a retained basis or, you know, at least an exclusive basis, because the idea of placing one in three means that by definition, as you pointed out, you're working for free 66% of the time, which doesn't add up. So I think philosophically, we have some, uh, you, you know, some ideas in conflict. But having said that, Craig, I, I really can't argue with your logic. Yeah. Well, let, let me address a couple of points. And first, I want to say that yeah. there is there is and always will be a massive place in the market for traditional recruitment model. It's embedded. It's expected. It's digestible. I totally agree with you that 
the contingency is not sustainable and, and even more so in times of, that we're in now. You know, it's there's there's no um, predictability or forecasting around it. There's no opportunity to work in any way unless it's transactional. You know, everything, yeah. if you want, if we're talking about value propositions and you, you, you know this, I'm sure you'd be uh, coaching this, one of the most important ways to have a, a value proposition or, or even a point of difference within recruitment is developing embedded relationships. So understanding your clients, you know, when I used to uh, train recruitment consultants, one of the things I said is you've made it and you don't need me or anyone else if you ever get invited by one of your clients to a HR strategy or, or a headcount strategy meeting because they're, they're valuing you. You're in there then. You are, it doesn't matter what you're doing. doesn't matter they, they, they trust you and, and that's, let's, let's be honest, um, there's not a lot of trust around our industry. Uh, so, True. you know, relationships are important. Exclusive and retained is the only way to go. And of course, there's going to be clients out there that won't do it, right? You know, there's going to be thousands upon thousands of clients in the market that aren't going to want to look at my model because they're going to say, what? You want me to pay for recruitment without guaranteeing a result? Come on. You know, I, I get that. That's, that's, I'm not saying this is the, you know, the, the golden egg of, of, of recruitment. But what I'm saying is my model, there's a massive place for it. The hard bit for me, and there are hard bits for everything, and I don't think it's worth doing anything unless you've got some challenges, is that the business is still really startup, even though I've been running for four years, because the first two and a half to three years has been education, going out to clients mm. and saying, do you want to look at recruitment differently? And more often than not, they'll say, no, why would I want to do that? So it's a lot of going back to the well, going back and, you know, developing an element of trust, giving us one go, having a look. Um, it's a very, very, very small fraction of the market that will look at my model. But in Australia, the recruitment industry is a $28 billion industry. Globally, you know, we're, we're in the, the last time I saw it was like 168 billion, but that's, it depends on what, what study you look at. Not much of a share of market do we need to be very, very, very successful. So for all your listeners, I'm not trying to replace them. I'm trying to come up with a point of difference that I can actually talk to and actually know that there's going to be very, very few, if anyone out there that will compete on that point of difference, only that point of difference, right? I, because my point of difference has uh, given Genesis or born a, a different billing model is the buy and buy. This idea of Rextra was was born out of recruiters who didn't, good recruiters who didn't fit into the traditional recruitment uh, industry. So we built an industry for them. I love that actually. That's cool. Um, and I'm surprised though that you haven't had a huge take up, you know, and, and an immediate uh, sort of impact on your industry because, you know, the it, 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 there is a trend in, a, in the global economy of this gig economy, right? Yep. Where, um, you know, people are able to be more of a freelancer mm -hmm. uh, rather than have a full-time, you know, traditional nine-to-five job and where um, they may work, you know, with a portfolio of client companies and they get paid per project or per hour, um, and so that is, that's definitely the way the world is going. And you've just applied that gig economy concept to the recruiting industry in a really cool way. Um, I would have thought there'd be tons of clients who'd be, be up for that. Oh, don't get me wrong. There's, there's, there's plenty of uptake, uh, but it was slower than I envisaged because probably the way you're sitting there, yeah, look, you know, it's, it's a lay down there that you're going to get some clients to go, wow, uh, a, a a, a, a recruitment solution that has quality driven recruiters that are proven, uh, they're experts in their field, they're local. So it's not even, you know, outsourced to get a, a cheaper um, rate. And yet it's 60, 70, 80% cheaper, you know, but the simple fact is uh, I, when, when, when I launched, 
I thought my market was small to medium businesses who couldn't pay recruitment fees, right? The local mechanic down the road needs a new mechanic, but I can't pay 10,000 bucks or, or 5,000 quid for, for a new mechanic. But what I can do is, is commit 1,000 quid and we would run the same process, right? It's not diluted. And at the other end comes a, a lovely new apprentice, apprentice mechanic and we're away. That's what I thought the market was going to be. But what the market's become has been large, large corporates with in-house talent acquisition teams in place and we're there on a flex capacity. So, you know, it's seasonal. Oh, we're not going to bring in any anybody else into our talent acquisition team. So we'll get some extra recruiters to help us out for the time we need them. Or, oh, we need a forensic uh, accountant, but our in-house team doesn't have the capability or the network for that. So we'll use a specialist extra recruiter in that area. And that's what it's become. But the selling cycle, if you like, plus the education cycle for our one is long because most of these large corporates are embedded in PSLs, right? Or have a RPO provider on in play and you only get a look every two years or so. Sure, there's a bit of leakage in all of them. We know that. You know someone who knows someone or you've got this great candidate and they can't say no to it. Yeah, that happens. But most of them like to keep to their PSLs and particularly if procurement's got a, got a handle on it, they're going to be really tight on it, right? So, it's a slow, slow burn to get into them. And then once we get in front of them, we're trying to pitch to procurement who run the finances that we're going to charge you and not guarantee you a person in that seat at the end of the process. That's why the process is longer and that's why it takes a bit of time. And throw into that something that I mentioned earlier is the trust or lack of trust within our industry. So I'm asking companies to trust me to spend some money with me before we place someone. And then if we don't, they're not getting anything back because they've paid for the work we've done on it. Right. So I'm asking a lot. I'm asking a lot of companies to invest in this solution. I get that. But now we've, we've hit that tipping point now and we're over the hill. So, you know, we've recently signed uh, the, probably the largest uh, government department in Australia. Uh, We've worked with, uh, one, well, one and a half, <laughs> very close. So let's say one of the big four consulting companies globally, uh, where we're partnering with um, the largest, I think they're the largest uh, or one of the probably top three largest tertiary institute, institutions in Australia. So we're getting some big, big, big take up. Um, and you know what? Coming out of this complete, cock up of 2020 that the whole world's um, covering, you know, coming out of this, people are going to be more open to the, the procurement people are going to say, how are we going to be able to tighten spend even more? So what that means for agencies is, is there's going to be margin pressure probably unless they can show yeah. value another way. Right. So that unfortunately for traditional agencies, unfortunately for me, that feeds back into my model again, because, you know, I, I can I can compete with anyone on price. Uh, so as we come out of this and as people slowly, slowly start to hire again uh, across the board, I'm not talking about specific industries that are, are doing really well, I can see that um, we're going to get a, a, a better foothold and, you know, scale into other areas too. And we're already scaling into some other countries at the moment. Uh, and yeah, so it's it's – it, but yeah, I, it's, I know that it's not palatable to the recruitment industry to say, look, there's something that's completely different and cheaper, right? And and it makes sense. If I was running a recruitment agency and I was listening to something like this or I saw a blog or whatever, I'd, I'd throw as much mud as, it, as I could too because, you know, you, you, you've got to protect your, your patch. Uh, what I would suggest, here you go, I'll be a bit controversial. What I'd suggest is instead of looking at my model and saying that, uh, and throwing mud at that, improve your own. You know, circle your wagons, yeah, yeah. improve your own, get better, get better at what you do. You're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, the the industry has changed a lot in the ten, in last, let's say, 10 years, but it's this pace of change is just going to speed up and mm. more technology, more automation, more uh, disruption. And 
people need to up their up their game, up level, you know, what they're doing and not just do things the way they've always, always done them. And, and so, you know, there is that. And secondly, what I think actually is cool and maybe would be worth considering is having different pricing models and rather than just one, this is the way we do it. Um, you know, you might have a client that is open to paying per hour instead of per, you know, placement. So and to that maybe point, there's, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Mark, to that point, we've, we've partnered with some agencies, some um, okay. forward thinking agencies who have picked up yeah. a piece of work and they've gone, you know, oh, gee, we need to bring on two or three consultants, but this might only be six months worth of work. And let's be honest, our, our industry is notorious and, and I just don't get this for not looking favorably upon, upon fixed term contract consultants internally. So, you know, I did some research about four years ago, this is Australian based research, but there was 900 and something respondents. The average tenure at one company for a recruitment consultant in Australia was 11 months, right? Wow. 11 months. Okay. So, you know, I know agencies are very worried about losing their IP or losing their client relationships. So this notion of a six month or 12 month fixed term contract is not what they want to go, you know, down that road because all they hear from clients is I'm sick of talking to a different consultant every time I pick up the phone. And, and that's fair enough, but wake up, you know, our, our industry has a tenure of 11 months. So basically we're an industry of, of 12 month fixed term contractors. So anyway, so I digress there, but, but because of, because of that, Craig, do, do, do this uh, research, were these agency recruiters or in, in-house recruiters? Agency, agency. So this was back from, I did this back in 2014. So it's probably a, a lot would have well, changed. That's, I don't think it's changed that much actually to 2014 to now. So you're, wow. You found that the average tenure was 11 months. Yeah. That's pretty shocking. Yeah. So, you know, I, I did a couple of um, uh, presentations on it and everything. And it's, you know, back then I didn't have this sort of model. It was more fix, fix your internal culture, um, understand what motivates people, you know, like people throwing one fixed commission structure or, or one way of incentivizing people when we all know that every, well, not every individual, but people are motivated by different things, right? And that old adage about putting the best biller in into a management role and then expecting them to be able to lead a team that have different needs. It, it, it was all counterintuitive that the whole way we worked and, and some, it's, some is slowly changing, uh, not fast enough. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to an extent because I was, I was um, training within the industry and consulting to some agencies and I don't do that anymore. So I can, I can, they're not bomb throwing. I can tell the truths that I think to be truths without worrying about losing clients anymore. So I can say, you know what? People say they change, but they don't. Well, but that's being too stereotypical. There's, there's a lot of really good people out there. A lot of really good agencies that are doing some really good stuff. Uh, there are a handful of, cowboy agencies out there that just just need to be driven out and then there's the middle ground which haven't changed and they'll, they'll even ride out a, a a downturn like this and settle back up again but not change much again and yes there'll be good times again and there'll be you'll be able to broaden your margins and you'll make lots and lots and lots of money but there'll also be bad times again and are you really preparing yourself for it if you're not making some change now and I know, you know, I didn't care, I'm, I'm happy not to talk about uh, Rextra as a, as a concept and, and talk about um, recruitment agencies and their need. You know, I, I wrote a blog, this was three or four weeks into COVID. I was on the train coming into work and I wrote a blog. I was just, it was just like this moment where I thought, oh my God, you know, I, I think no, most people went through it. There was that grieving period and I was grieving for the disappearance of all the work. And I wrote a blog and the headline was probably a massive mistake. I wrote recruitment is dead. Okay. Stupid. But everyone does it. I mean, Greg Savage wrote a blog, a blog title that said females are better recruiters than males. He didn't mean it. It's, it's to get people to read it. Right. Um, of course. Yeah. So, so I wrote that and, and then I went through and I hardly mentioned Rextra at all, but what I was mentioning all the way through was if you, if recruitment agencies don't change, 
they're not going to survive because there's going to be some really smart players here that come out with some different ways of doing things or refine their model and they're going to win their traditional market share. I'm not winning much traditional market share. I'm winning different markets where, uh, you know, I don't really compete. I compete probably more against some RPO type stuff than agency. So, but there's going to be some smart agency people out there that are just going to take your market share right away from you if you, if you just go through this. You know, one of the people who responded to the blog said that uh, the last person at the dance will win, you know, and I just, I, I, that's not, I don't think that's the way to look at it. I think that I know we're all struggling. We're all going, oh my God, our margins or our profits have gone. We're, we're putting people in furlough or, or we're letting people go. We know that it's, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. But every single business owner needs to take a step back and go, what am I going to do differently when I can catch my breath? Uh, you know, when, I, when the, the carnage stops and I've got to rebuild from whatever baseline that might be, whatever it is, it's got to be a different build. It's not this, it's, you know, it, and it frustrates me that um, there's going to be so many people that won't. And they'll, in two years' time or three years' time, when things are better, they'll be going, I survived COVID and look at me. No different. And then next time they're going to have an, a bit more of an erosion of their market share. They're not, oh, it's frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So listen, I, I think there's a couple of key things. One is interesting that, and there may well be uh, recruitment agencies that win a piece of work and then they want to subcontract to you, Craig. Uh, so that could come out of this, but also just curious, um, you guys are in Australia, but my audience is international. Mm. If there are recruiters who actually love, like maybe they want to freelance or they are, they hear this podcast and they would love to work in this way, can, do you have uh, any plans for international expansion? Yeah. So we've already done some work in the States. Uh, okay. We've done some into Asia uh, and New Zealand. We will, we've, we've done some work for a, U, a major UK UK headquartered company in Australia and they're going to bring us into the UK. So, you know, it's nice to go in with some, some guaranteed work, right? With any, anything you do. Right. So yes, scale and, and global expansion is, is not only on the cards. I, I'll be disappointed that if we don't uh, go into other areas, but it's, we, we love the fact that there's, you know, so when we, so when you're saying about, and also not only then, but now, if there are recruiters who are looking to freelance who are in other markets now, when we talk with our clients, we have three key areas that we help them choose a recruiter to partner with them. One of them, and and it depends on the priorities of the the um the client. So one would be specialization, one would be experience, and one would be location. Okay. So if location is low on the list of priorities, it doesn't matter if, you know, like I said before, a forensic accounting specialist, if there was one in the UK, they could work a role in Sydney. It doesn't matter that, you know, it's, if specialization is what's key to the, um, to the client, we go with what the client wants. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I have clients who place internationally already, but you know, from wherever they, they happen to be. So that, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. cool. I think the world's so much smaller now, right? And, and some yeah. of the, some of the tech where we have at our fingertips now enable us to do, you know, and uh, speaking of that, going back to the agencies and, and someone, some people might saying, oh, you know, I don't like Rextra. That's fine. We were sitting here five, seven years ago saying, oh my God, LinkedIn's going to, people are going to say, saying LinkedIn's going to destroy the recruitment industry. It hasn't. Sure. They're making continued plays and they're getting a bit better. And they do, they, they've, you know, at, at shareholders meetings, they've openly said that they, you know, are going to move into the place of recruitment, but they haven't killed the industry. They haven't, they haven't diminished the value or the need for agency recruiters. Technology, you know, AI, all these things over the last couple of years, people are saying, well, that's it, you know, but it hasn't. So, the agency recruiter will not only prevail, but they'll prosper based on their ability and based on their ability to match client need and demonstrate value, right? So find your value piece and get around it. And my value piece is clearly very different to traditional recruitment. I've got to educate clients to take it on and then I've got to deliver on something and make sure uh, just as you have to deliver and, and execute your um 
solution for other recruitment agencies, but just make sure you own it and you know it and you've, you know, the days of being a transactional recruiter should be so far gone. Definitely. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Craig, listen, this has been nothing if not thought provoking <laughs> and you're a really interesting guy. I've oh, thoroughly thanks. enjoyed this. A couple of things before we go. So first of all, um, if people want to find out more about Rextra, uh, I mean, we'll obviously include the link in the show notes, but for the people who are just listening yep. on their phone, what's the website address? It's rec- www.rextra.com. Awesome. And then um, your podcast, they can find wherever they consume podcasts. It's yeah. Tapod, T-A-P-O-D. What does that mean? What ta- Tapod? So it's, it's actually, in- it's actually Tapod. So Tar is in Talent Acquisition Pod Podcast. Tar? Talent Acquisition Podcast. Okay. So it's really- Talent so Acquisition so, Podcast. Oh, okay. That yeah. makes sense. So Sorry. it's very much uh, targeted at the internal function. But I think that- Agency recruiters who would like to learn more about the pain uh, and the thought process of internal recruitment teams might just get a little bit out of it. Yeah, no, totally. And I, I've, uh, in preparation for this, I listened to to some episodes and I mean, the quality is top notch. You guys are, are doing a, uh, a terrific job with that. Um so listen, we've uh, we've already been talking for almost an hour. Gee. So we're into bonus bonus time now. <laughs> um, there's a couple of lighter things I wanted to ask you about. Well, I, I, lighter is not the correct term, but maybe let's say off topic. Um, tell me about your life saving uh, work and how you came to to be interested in that. Yeah, look, I, I'm a I'm an old man. Uh, and my family uh, went bought a bought a beach house, and it, it, it's just a shack. Let's say a shack. Oh, actually, my dad built it himself, so we really had a block of land uh, down at a beach called Venus Bay, which is on the rugged South Victorian coast in Australia. And I joined the club when I was seven, uh, and I've been a member now for forty something years. Uh, recently, and I, I love it, and I'm still an active lifesaver. I patrol uh, most weekends over summer. We've, I was president for the last uh, four years. I just just um, handed over to the new president, and we're lucky. Like you know, we're we're a very small club, and people from the UK might have heard of places like Bondi and um, big, you know, Surface Paradise, big life saving areas. We're very very small, but we were. Um, you know, we're, we're, we work really hard. We won uh, Australian Lifesaving Club of the Year uh, last year, which is, you know, massive, massive for something like us. Uh, it's like a, you know, a, a pub side winning the FA Cup, I think. So um, we were we were very proud of it. We're, and it's, it's fun because, well, not fun. Well, it's fun, but I think that, you know, I run a small business uh, running a Lifesaving Club where you've got 600 members and they're all volunteers and you've got, uh, a leadership team of eight who are also volunteers. It's very, very different. So you learn a lot of leadership skills by default because, you know, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're paying someone's salary, they've got to do what you say. Uh, if you're, right. Yeah, if you're working with a group of volunteers, it's, it's more being able to inspire and engage and just sort of like light a fire in their passion. And I'm not saying I'm great at it. Got, you know, there's way better people I've seen who do it, but it's such a different way of of working with a group of people and it's it's taught me so much and I love it. I love it. And I mean, just, you know, to show how much I love it, we've, an, another club um, has been nominated for Club of the Year this year down the road a fair bit and they reached out to, to me and I've spent probably the last four weeks, two nights a week with them working on their submission and mentoring them through it because I just love lifesaving. It doesn't matter where you are. It's, you know, it's, it's the, it's probably the only emergency service in the world that is also a sporting organization and two of my greatest loves, right? So it's, yeah, it's, we're very, very, very lucky to be, to, to be part of an, a movement like lifesaving, I think. I, I definitely, hear what you're saying and I hadn't ever thought of it before about the leadership skills involved, but actually um, I think those sorts of leadership skills, inspiring people, engaging people so that they feel they want to do the work and not they have to do it. I mean, that applies to business as well, right? If you can, if you can create that 
type of environment for your team, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. People who are hiring recruitment consultants, right, or or into your business, you know, just have a little bit of a look. Have they got a team sport background and a leadership role within? Or have they been part of Boy Scouts movement and a leadership role? Something, because if they've been in a leadership role in, in either a community sport or a volunteer organisation, not-for-profit, and had even a, a monicum of success in it, they've got some real fantastic skills to polish that are already there. Interesting. Yeah, I had never thought of that. That's really cool. Tell me about a situation where like you've actually saved someone's life and where it, you know, it was, it, it, it was, uh, you've had to use those skills that you've, you know, cause I imagine it, you, a lot of time you're just, you know, wandering around the beach and mm. enjoying the weather, but not, not much going on, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And look, you know, it, it sounds glamorous and I, I don't know if you get Bondi Rescue over in the UK, but, you know, it's on here once a week and um, it, it does look glamorous. And, and look, rescues are interesting because you've been trained well and you just go into that mode. It's nothing special. It's no, you, no one's a hero. No one, it, it's nothing different because you've been trained to do it. So you just do it and, and, and you all take a role. Like I'll give you an example this year. So, uh, about two kilometers, three kilometers from our beach, uh, there was a group of three or four people that got into some really bad, um, trouble. I drove down, uh, our rescue vehicle with one other a uh, person who was in their forties and there were three kids with us. When I say three kids, mm. one, two were 13 and one was 15 lifesavers, fresh, just really qualified, came with us. We got to the situation. I looked at the, um, the surf, the surf was large. I wasn't going to do very well. I'm a bit too old for that and probably unfit. So we straight away, I just said, look, okay, um, Linda, who was the other, the other mature person, you run the radio, I'll run the scene. Uh, one of the, one of the other, uh, lifesavers, young ones, can you go up and get a better vantage point? The other two go out and save these people. And it just happened. Right. And wow. you know, these kids got their kids and they got, uh, bravery awards this year because it was massive surf and they executed That's- the rescue so quickly. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, that, but, but none of them and none of us think really anything other than that's what that's what we trained to do and that's what we signed up to do so you just i'm sure i mean wow that's a cool story and Mm. uh you know i can see why you might look at it that way presumably to the people who you who whose lives were saved they probably view it differently and and um you know would regard you guys as you know, heroic in, 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 in a sense, but. Well, probably, but you know, it's, it's a little, it's a little bit like recruitment. It's a lot about luck and timing. <laughs> well, be, luck is preparation plus opportunity, right? That's um, right. Yeah. So uh, I don't really believe in, in luck in, in that sense, <laughs> but um, Hey, you know, any, uh, my, my brother-in-law actually lives in, um, in Brisbane right. and he's a, a paramedic uh, on an ambulance um, and he's also a keen surfer. Um, and, uh, his, his only real fear is sharks. Have you had any shark encounters? I don't know if there's sharks yeah. where yeah, in, lots, you, know, lots, where you are. But. Lots. Let, let's, let, let's be honest. We can only see the top of the water. What's underneath the water we don't see. And that's where sharks live, right? There's, we see them often. Um, I've had many an, an encounter with them. Um, not, not deadly or anything like that, but I think that, you know, uh, Australia has a lot of, um, poisonous and dangerous <laughs> animals. And, and if you, yeah, you worry too much about it, you, you're not going to enjoy your day. So I think that look, sharks, sharks are definitely scary. And, and I'll tell you another, I'll tell you a little, um, quirk of mine. If I'm out in the water and I go out in the water a lot, if I'm out in the water with one other person, I never think of sharks. If I'm out there by myself, I think only about sharks. Really? Yeah, I guess. Gosh, what's the closest encounter you've had with a shark? Uh, well, I've, I've had them swim under me when I've surfed quite, quite often. Uh, well, quite often, probably four or five times in my life. That's not quite often really, but, um, you know, and you know, they're definitely sharks. I've had uh, once or twice where they sort of circle, but at a distance and it's not like okay. jaws. It's, it's, it's just different. Um, 
yeah, but you know, the, the funniest thing I ever saw was we had, we, there was a, a, I was running the beach once as life-saving and um, a boat radioed in and said, oh, we've just seen a five-metre shark. When five metres is pretty bloody big for a shark because they've been dropping um, blood and guts off the boat to try to attract fish. So we had to clear the water. So we did the siren and got everyone out of the water uh, and it was a hot, hot day and there was a lot of people on the beach and they're all kind of saying, when are you going to let us back in? When are you going to let us back in? Because no one saw the shark, right? Um so I asked these guys to go out in one of those rubber motorised boats just to do a, a, a recce, just to do a couple of laps, see what they could see. So they went up, up and down, up and down, and they didn't see anything. And then they looked at the beach and they saw all these hundreds, maybe about a thousand people on the beach standing, watching them because, you know, they wanted to get back in the water and they wanted to know whether it was a shark. So they thought they'd put on a show. So they started hitting waves and, you know, doing these acrobatic things in the boat. And then they did this thing where they hit a wave and right at the top of the, the wave, the guy who was crewing, jumped really high and went about 20 foot in the air and landed back in the water and thought, yeah, you know, and everyone's in the crowd cheering <laughs> and he landed in the water and the boat sort of just stopped. And as soon as he landed, a fin came up behind him. It was the funniest thing you've ever seen. And he, uh, it was like a cartoon. He's almost like swam on the top of the water to get back into the boat. But yeah, so that was probably the oh my gosh. closest encounter. And it wasn't my encounter. It was, I was, a, I was part of the audience. So that was good. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <laughs> well, Craig, I'll let you go for now. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on The Resilient Recruiter. And thanks for giving me the opportunity, Mark. Look forward to listening to many, many more episodes that you put on. All right. Awesome. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Ta, you too. Bye. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview. Recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you, or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com or feel free to nominate yourself. And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Like once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.